The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with First Circle, and I'm so excited about today's episode. We have Nefertiti Austin with us, and I have a guest co-host. Aaron has been helping to produce the Birth Circle podcast for almost a year now, and she is going to be co-hosting this episode with me. So I'm very, very excited. Thank you so much for being with us, Nefertiti. Thanks for having me. So I just want to read a little bit about you. You um, you are an author, and uh, I'm a more memoirist. And you write about the erasure of the diverse voices in motherhood and in your critically acclaimed Motherhood, So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. And your work has been covered in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Huffington Post, MUTHA, Gen Medium, and many other publications. You've also been the subject of an article on race and adoption in the Atlantic and appeared on numerous shows and podcasts and radio programs, including the Today Show, 1A with Joshua Johnson, and NPR. You're also the proud adoptive mother of two children living in Los Angeles, California. That's me. Yay. Awesome. And welcome, Erin. And we'll go ahead and, and take it away. All right. I am so excited to be doing this. I'm a little nervous, but I'm very excited that I was very obsessed with your story because I'm also a single woman who within the next few years will probably be adopting. So I just really wanted to get in on this. So I'm really excited to be interviewing you. Well, welcome and welcome to the club. All right. So first of all, what we like to do, just tell us how you tell us a little bit about your story. Usually we ask people how they got into the birth world, but your story is a little different. We don't cover a lot of adoption. So I'm really excited. Talk about your journey to your decision to adopt as a single mother, kind of what influenced your decision to adopt over other methods like IVF or anything else? What, what kind of drove your whole decision? So I think I didn't come to the truth of how I made the decision to adopt until I was actually writing my memoir. And so what I realized in the process was that the seeds of adoption had been there really all along. My brother and I were were raised by grandparents, so we were not adopted by them. I call it my black adoption because Mm -hmm. it was just an informal grandparents, both sets, Uh parents got together, had a discussion, and it was a wrap. That was it. So Um, so I, I was raised by family members, but they were not necessarily my parents, although I did see my parents, you know, we definitely had a relationship with our parents and my best friend is adopted and she became an adoption social worker. So it was really just sort of background for me for, for many years. And I always wanted to be married. I used to go to the grocery store and buy the knot and, you know, rip out pictures of wedding gowns and, yeah. you know, have my rings picked out the whole nine of and, course. you know, wanted 14 bridesmaids. Cause I couldn't figure out, like, didn't want to leave a best friend out. You know, I had it yep. all planned out and I hit my mid twenties and like, I was a bridesmaid, like extraordinaire. Yep. Always real, yes. And then, but I also realized during mid twenties that I wasn't ready for that commitment that I, I was just too, um, 
I wasn't mature enough for all of that. So yep, I can understand that. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I have my godson was sort of like my first child and then nieces. So I always loved kids and it was something that I wanted to do, but I really wasn't ready until like my mid thirties. And at that point I wasn't dating anyone in particular and sort of, I call it my mommy Jones. I really wanted to be a mother more than I wanted anything else. And so the yeah. logical step to me was adoption. I wasn't interested in being pregnant by myself. I have some friends who really wanted to be pregnant. That would have been fine, but it wasn't like at the top of my list of things to do. Yeah. And living in Los Angeles, we have so many children in foster care. It was just really a no brainer to hmm. adopt and to go through the foster care system. And so that's my journey to motherhood. Okay, that's awesome. I love that. And we're kind of not really encouraged as single women to want to be mothers first. Right. Which is, I think is silly, especially you say it was a no brainer to go into the foster system because there's so many kids there. And it could be so much easier to get them adopted if more people were encouraged to, who feel ready to be parents. Um, yeah. But when like I was able to read some of your book and you kind of ran into a little bit of stigma once sure. you got into the process, what, at what point did you kind of realize that stigma was there with what you were trying to do? So in California, anyone can adopt. So <laughs> process wise, it was easy breezy. Um, you have, there's steps you have to take, pass a background check, uh, have a home study, those sort of things. So that was fine, but it was really culturally. And so, and, and even I describe myself as being an outlier in two communities. So in the mm -hmm. black community, as I mentioned, my own black adoption, we turn inward and we, we look within our families first. Are there nieces, are there cousins, are there extended family members, maybe people in our neighborhood or people in our church who need a home. And that's typically our go-to. So, I really broke ranks by going outside of my family. Okay. I adopted children I did not know. And for, I would definitely say older generations of Black people would ask me, first question always is, you know, was um, who are his people? Because the mm -hmm. expectation was that I knew his people. And, you know, surely I would not take in the child whose people I did not know. Mm -hmm. And so then I would be like, well, I don't, I don't know them because I adopted through the foster care system. And then I'd be hit with, well, oh, I would, I would never do that. I would never adopt a stranger. So children in foster care then and now have a stigma oh, as yeah. being, you know, the dregs, the, you know, children that people didn't want. And that's so far from the truth. The children go to foster care typically due to neglect and abuse. That's the reason that they are there. It's, it's pretty rare mm -hmm. that a mother says, oh, I just don't want you. And I'm going to go and give you up. That's not, yeah. that's not how it works. And so it was overcoming a couple of stigmas. So my own role as outlier in the black community. And then when my son went to preschool and kindergarten, the the children who were adopted typically were from Ethiopia or they were Korean or they were Chinese. And so then that was a different line of questions. So then those questions were, where's he from? Mm -hmm. And so when I said, oh, he's from the uh, Los Angeles County foster care system, you know, eyebrows would kind of go <laughs> up, not, like, you know, not wild or exotic enough. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so it was still, you know, the stigma 
of children in foster care, I mean, that, that cuts across race and it cuts across class. You know, there's just an overarching stigma around these children. And so I found myself kind of caught like right in the middle of expectations from my own community, as well as people who adopt, you know, it's a certain way that people do things. And that definitely obviously didn't apply to me. And I was quite comfortable with the choice that I made. And there's kind of already a stigma attached to, like you said, to adopted foster children. They're already going to be going to be like, oh, they're going to have emotional problems. They're yes. going to have this, this trouble. It's going to be difficult for you. And plus you were, you wanted to adopt a black child. And there's that extra stigma that yes. you wanted to adopt a boy because yes. I, I, I may have read this wrong, but you wanted to adopt a boy because you wanted to give him an easier life because yes. girls always kind of always people, get rescued to have it easier is that what oh, I absolutely I mean you know even now people the expectation around girls you know is that oh they're sweet and they're kind and they're going to be okay and people want them and hmm. with black boys I mean in terms of an evergreen topic it's police brutality against community of color and you know violence against black bodies I mean that's been happening since Africans were enslaved. So that's been going on and unfortunately continues to go on. So the expectation, the idea that Black boys are going to be aggressive and violent and they won't do well in school and they're going to grow up and they'll be these horrible human beings. That was something that really kind of wrinkled me. And yeah. I, because the, the guys I grew up with weren't like that. Mm -hmm. And I, and the men in my family and my friends' dads and teachers or probation officers, the, the black men that I knew were upstanding citizens with the exception of my dad who had a drug problem and mm -hmm. committed crime. So he was in and out of prison my whole life. But even with that, he wasn't like the worst person on the planet. Yeah. And so I really wanted, I, I kind of saw it as my community service, my chance to, you know, sort of directly combat a negative stereotype and unbeknownst to me, six years later, I would adopt a black girl and discover, you know, other sort of stereotypes that that would come into play as, as well. That's fantastic. I, I just love that because there's all these levels of things people don't really think about because there's already a stigma that these children coming out of abuse are going to be really hard to deal with. And the stigma that black men are going to be super aggressive. I also love that, like, you didn't go into this with your eyes closed, but there were still surprises. Oh, God, right? yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. What were some of the other surprises you had? Well, it's funny. I was talking to a friend earlier today. So both of our boys are headed to high school. And uh, so of my friend's, my friend's son's crew, there, you know, everyone had boys and then the next crew were all boys and then we have the girl. Mm -hmm. And so she is cute and that was intentional because she is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> and so she is so much more challenging to parent than my son ever was. And so every now and then I just kind of look at her like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> It's always she, against your expectations. Huh? Yes, she's like <laughs> Dennis the Menace in, in pretty girl form. It's just like, wow. Um, so that was funny to me, just the total opposite of stereotype. Mm -hmm. And then um, other things I didn't expect. I'll, I'll start with having a girl. I remember when she was in preschool, 
she, I was talking to her teacher and he said, oh, she seems angry. And at the time, I think maybe Diary of a Mad Black Woman was in the theaters, I think, or had been out, you know, maybe for a little bit. So I started laughing because I thought he was sort of referencing that movie, which I hadn't even seen. But in any event, he said it a second time. And he got ready to say it a third time. And I had to stop him. And I had to say, she's four. She's not angry. Like, you know, what is, (laughs) what is she doing or not doing that we need to address? Because to describe a black girl, and she was the only black girl in her class, to describe her as angry is incredibly problematic. And to his credit, he did immediately correct and he said, I am sorry, that was the wrong word choice. But it's stuff like that, that I would have never thought, I mean, sure, children do get angry, you know, when they don't get their way. So I'm not trying to suggest that my daughter doesn't, you know, get angry, but his characterization of her using that singular word angry mm-hmm. is problematic. And it's something that I didn't expect. And, um, but it, it got me together because I, I then began to understand that, oh, that just as there have been microaggressions against my son when he was younger and really having to talk to teachers and administration at the school, I see that I may have to wear the same hat uh-huh. on behalf of my daughter. Yeah. And so that I did not expect. Okay. And just to lean into that a little, it's something I've noticed between largely white spaces and black spaces is there is a cultural difference and there's a lot of historical stigma to that as well, but just a kind of black culture is expressing yourself bigger than yes. like Eurocentric white culture kind of is. So right. I imagine a lot of that she's angry is just she was expressing herself bigger because that's her community. Exactly. And they weren't prepared for it. Do you think that's a lot of- Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I tell the story frequently about when my son was in the fourth grade and it was a rainy day. And so they were watching a movie and the kids didn't have to watch it because it's rainy day schedules, probably lunch during lunchtime. And so he, he was upset because the kids were talking and he really wanted to see the movie. So I, I get an email from the teacher and ha- and she's telling me, you know, that he, what angry, there's that word again. And, um, and so then we had a meeting and I asked, okay, well, what were the circumstances? And so she told me, and then when I checked in with him and I said, well, hey, what was going on? And he's like, oh, that's one of my favorite movies and my friends were talking. So I was annoyed with them because they were talking. So I go back to the teacher and I said, well, when I checked in with him, he expressed that he was annoyed with his friends because he wanted to watch the movie. That's a far cry from being angry. And so once again, this word choice, because then when it gets memorialized on a progress report or report card, and then it, it stays in a file or um, sometimes for camp, they'll ask for like, you know, grades or whatever. Yeah. And if you have language by your teacher stating that this child is aggressive or um, negatively impacting the class without interrogating, you know, what was actually happening, then mm-hmm that's a problem. So what that told me was that every single time anything happened and he responded, whether it was positively or negatively, it was going to be an issue. And I really had to drive the point across to, you know, not just fourth grade, but 
this went on for um, a couple of years. And then finally, everything kind of just everyone, we got it, we got past that. But yeah. really having to express that, you know, I have a child who has a big voice and he was the tallest in the class until oh, sixth yeah. grade. And so he loves school and he's very enthusiastic about it. And so he laughs loud and he experiences everything at a 10. Mm. That doesn't mean that he is um, intentionally trying to take away from the the vibe in the classroom and then other stuff like he would shout the answers out and <laughs> yep. the uh teacher you know so then that was an issue and so I said well you know can can you wait patiently and to be called upon and so sometimes he would say well my hand is raised and she didn't call on me and so I understand as an adult that you know the kids have to take their turn but by the same token I wasn't going to you know squash his his joy of learning because the white female teacher had an idea about how black children behave themselves, especially black boys, how they behave in a school setting. And that's a huge problem and it continues. Yeah, and you don't want to try and teach him to not feel his emotions. No. They're bigger than his teacher expects. Of course not. And you know, he and I, we talked about, you know, okay, what can what can you do you know what's your participation i mean i think he's loud i have to tell him that you know lord's voice all the time but it's not in a way that's going to kill his spirit and that's yeah. i think the point that parents of color try to make with schools and in educational settings it's that we understand that sometimes we are very passionate about what we're passionate about and Sure, we have to comply within the confines of where we are because that's life, you know, that's just the world. However, there's a way to do it without killing their spirit. And that's what we don't want to do is kill their joy of learning, kill their spirit or, you know, negatively impact their self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And that's super duper important for, for any kid. But sure. obviously, if your culture is expressing yourself bigger than killing that is going to kill a big part of who they are. So I love that distinction. <laughs> So when you were going through this process, realizing that you didn't fit the image of what society thinks a mother is, what the mother looks like, when you were realizing that, did it affect your confidence at all? Or did it just kind of bolster your determination to make it different? So as a semi-reformed free spirit, didn't care. <laughs> Still don't care. It's not my problem. <laughs> so. I like that. <laughs> And I'm only semi-reformed because the kids have me on a schedule. So. Oh, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> that's awesome. That, that's good to hear because I think we all kind of need trailblazers and it would be kind of confidence shaking for a lot of people to be in that situation. How did you go about finding the sort of community that could help your son and eventually your daughter feel like their family was normal? Because we're not really told that like, well, there wasn't sometimes some kids have families that are divorced, but sure. it's never, well, mommy just wanted to have kids and she didn't need a daddy. So, well, that's essentially it. I mean, in our friendship circles, like I think almost all of the parents are either married or co-parenting, but mm -hmm. they present as a unit. Mm -hmm. And so we definitely have been, you know, the outlier again in that. But my friends 
kids have been wonderful. They've been all super supportive. I, a couple of the guys were raised by single moms. And so they definitely really leaned into however I can support you any need because I was your son, you know, when he was little. And so when things come up, they'll call me or they'll text and they'll say, hey, we're going to go go-kart racing. We're going to do these things. You know, would your son like to come? And I appreciate that. So we didn't have a hard time. And when he began Little League, that was really the beginning of his community that we saw, I mean, during the school day, plus after school for practice, and then on the weekends, sitting in the stands at the baseball field. And when my daughter came along, because again, it's all boys, so she's the only girl. And so when she came along, for many of these guys, they had a chance to have a daughter that they didn't have to take home. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so they're, you know, super supportive and they just welcomed her right on in. And as she gets older, she, she has her own village. And in fact, we were with friends on Sunday and they had a kickball game. And so it's really nice. I think it's about six families and I'm so happy for her. I even texted everyone. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy for this group. I'm happy that she has her village of families. And these are people, I know if we need anything or if they need anything, we can call upon each other. And, you know, it's a pretty diverse group of families. So it's, it's really wonderful. That is so great. It, it does take a village. So. Yes, it does. Um, did you just, did you find that community through your family, through school, just through things school. you were doing? Okay. Through, through school. Okay. Uh, so you told us how you got to the decision to adopt. Can you tell me about the adoption of your kids, just kind of give me their stories. How, where, where they come from? How did you get paired with them? How did kind of the process go? And how did bonding with them go? And what okay. did you know about their lives before and all of that? Okay, so by going through uh, public foster care system, I had to take parenting classes. And in those classes, they give you just like the background of the pool of children, you know, why they and how they got to the foster care system. And as a prospective foster adoptive parent, there were things that I had to do. So one of the things was there was a form that I completed and I, I got to say, like gender-wise, what was I open to, uh, like a history of parents, if there's a history of drug abuse, if like for me, alcoholism was a non-starter, but yeah. if a birth parent, mother or father had a history of drug abuse, you know, that's, that's a different conversation. So yeah. those things. And then once the, the match form was completed and I had completed the course, they, I think they do a pretty good job of managing expectations. Like, you know, it could be a year before you receive a placement, but I did have to be ready because as part of becoming licensed, I had to have things in place. I knew I wanted a little boy zero to six months old. Mm. And so I had to have a crib and um, like an outfit and food, that sort of thing. So I was ready. I did not expect things to move so quickly. So I finished in March and like six weeks later, I got a call saying, oh, we found a match. So the person who, who matched me was a social worker. Hmm. And so she told me about this little boy. He was nine months old and he had some delays though. He was unable to sit up on his own. He couldn't hold his own bottle and a few other challenges. And I was given the option to say, sure, I will foster this child or I'm not sure. And one of the things they stress is we don't want to re-injure the children. And just to be honest. And so I felt like 
brand new mom. I didn't feel comfortable at that point that I would be able to really, I, I would obviously rise to the occasion, but I didn't want to re-injure. And so because he had some challenges, I said, no, thank you, knowing that he would go to the right place. And so mm -hmm. I went on with my life. And then a couple months later, I got another call about, an, I think he was three months old. So now that was on the younger end for me, but okay. So the mom was 16. The father was 29. So, you know, that's a problem. Oh, cool, 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 cool. So, um, but I was warned that in that case, because she's a, a teen, mm -hmm. the department would do everything to get her ready to keep her child. And yeah. my job would really be as a foster parent. And so I really wanted to adopt. And in California, you have to foster before you adopt. Yeah. And so that wasn't going to be a situation necessarily that I would be able to keep him. Mm -hmm. But I agreed. I thought, well, if I can, you know, support, then, then sure. And then the day I was supposed to go and pick up the little boy, the mother and father absconded with the child. So oh, <laughs> that didn't happen. Oh, no. And then uh, finally... I call him my birthday present. I get a call in July. That's so great. Saying, um, we've got a six month old and uh, he is uh, very determined and he's healthy and he's happy and all these wonderful things. And so I agreed to meet my worker. She gave me more information and I got to meet him. And so when I met him, I, it wasn't, I, I get this a lot, you know, oh, was it love at first sight? It wasn't, it wasn't that, but oh. what I knew was this is my son. Yeah. And when I left the first meeting, I thought if she calls me and tells me that I cannot have him, I'm going to go back and get him. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we've been together ever since he's now 14. Mm -hmm. And for my daughter, okay. So in kindergarten, late kindergarten, my son started saying he wanted a baby and I just ignored him. And then he's like, you know, I really want a sister. I really want a baby sister. And I was so anti little girls. I'm like, I, okay, if I'm going to cave, it's going to be for a, another little boy. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, six years in, I'm good at this point as a boy mom. And we, my son and daughter ultimately share a mom, but at this point I didn't know, I didn't know that it's a whole bunch of children in this particular family mm -hmm. and they're young. My, my son has younger siblings and we got invited to a party and I had begun the process to adopt another little boy mm. because I had caved and I didn't want him to be an only child and I'm still single at this point. Yeah. So I'm thinking I, I didn't want like this huge age gap either. So again, I had a plan, I had it all worked out. So begin the process, we meet this family who have their younger siblings and there's a baby. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, who is that? And so I'm told, oh, this is the younger sister. So I said, well, full disclosure, I'm in the process of adopting another little boy, but what's going to happen with the girls? And so I was told, oh, well, we are in the process of adopting the girls. We're going to adopt the two-year-old first and then the baby. So, okay, mm -hmm. you know, that that's fantastic. And However, the universe had other plans because I did something I never do. I held her and I don't oh. like to hold babies. And in fact, I don't even like to like look at that. I like to avert my gaze because if I look at them for too long, I'm going to want them to come home with me. Get and you. So, uh -huh, so I held her and 
I thought, and my cousin was with me and we have a photo from that day. And on the way home, my cousin says, you know, that's your baby. And so I was like, well, no, because they're going to adopt her. You know, she's spoken for. And anyway, universe intervened and it was just the craziest thing. I get a call six weeks later asking, could I take the girls and they don't like to separate siblings. And so they wanted me to take both girls. And I said, no. And I said, no, because we lived in this itty bitty apartment in Beverly Hills and there wasn't any room for us. And I was like, I got a fish. I don't have room for like, you know, no, (laughs) I, I can't bring two more kids in here. And anyway, uh, the decision was made that we were able to get the baby who's now eight and mm. she was 10 months old at the time. And this, their sister went with their godmother, which was a good choice because yeah. she had a very close relationship with her godmother. And so that's how I arrived to this day. I got two kids by myself and I'm outnumbered. <laughs> You're still single now? I am. <laughs> awesome. 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 And do your kids, do they get to see their biological siblings still every once in a while? Is that a sure? Yeah. Yes, we did. Uh, COVID disrupted that. Oh, so yeah. now that we are on the mend uh, with that, hopefully in the summertime, we'll be able to see them. That's awesome. Do, do they have a good relationship with them or uh, oh, yeah. a little? Oh, no, no, it's great when they see yeah. each other. I mean, it's like long lost lovers. Oh yeah, no, no, Aww. they have a great relationship with with their brother. That's awesome. So, um, back to just the adoption system. Do you think that the current uh, cultural perception of what an adoptive mother looks like kind of deters potential single parents or parents of color from thinking about adopting from the sure. foster system? Absolutely, because in mainstream culture, it's definitely normalized. Um, you know, adoption is on the table from the beginning. Yeah. But for but for us, for for Black people, it's not. I mean, we don't. So there's all these myths that Black women can just get pregnant. Okay, so yeah. that's that's a, a myth. Oh yeah. And then lots of Black women struggle with fertility and you know all of those things. But mm-hmm. because it's not normalized, even when I have friends, you know, even talking with their gynecologists and things, it isn't even always put on the table. Well, there there are other options or alternative ways to becoming a mom. And Mm. so many women hold this sense of failure. And that's not just black women. I know that's women in general. Oh my God, you know, my body is designed to do this one thing and it it, it won't even do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that once, you know, sort of the picture of what an adoptive family looks like is truly diversified. I think that perhaps we'll have less children in the system because right now, when people think of adoption, you know, often people go to celebrities and um, because the, the belief is you have to be rich in order to adopt because we see Madonna and we see Angelina Jolie and all these people who are really celebrated and that, and they have means. And so people think, oh my God, I don't have enough money, so I can't adopt or that's something white people do that's not something black people do which is definitely also not true or there you know people are super religious these white christian couples who adopt 10 kids and they live out in the country on a farm yeah you know and so and that's not true either i mean the adoptive community is very diverse however even within adoption they cater more towards transracial 
adoption. So I still find myself like, hello, you know, you all are not the only ones. There's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of us out there who look like me, um, mm -hmm. a single mom, you know, maybe a woman of color or two moms or two dads or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and you're right. I was thinking, just kind of trying to think through the people I know who are adopted, what their situation is. I know mm -hmm. a lot of transracial adoptions. And I know a lot of people of color who were adopted by relatives, mm -hmm. but I really can't think off the top of my head of a lot of stories I've ever heard of uh, even, even black couples adopting right. black children from the system. Right. So that because just people don't don't mention it just because it's not the image or is it just not happening as much because it's not an option people think they have. Well, I think it's twofold. Uh, Black people don't adopt at the same, we don't formally adopt at the same rates as whites. And mm. so the numbers of Black people who informally adopt, those numbers are not tracked. And okay. so I know there's something, um, there's a special name for it. It's, um, oh, they call it grand families. Oh, okay. And so now grand families, I think they're, those numbers are are now being tracked, um, A, the opioid crisis has made being a grand family less uh, negative, less seen as something that communities of color do. Yeah. And so, but, you know, op opioids have been around for a really long time, but it yeah. wasn't until, you know, young, beautiful, rich white people and white kids in the suburbs are dying for it from mm -hmm. these, you know, opioids that suddenly it's a thing. And so, the grand families, I've seen so many articles where they feature white families who are taking in their children because someone had an op opioid issue. And it's like, well, we've been doing that for years. And, <laughs> for you know, yeah, for, you know, for a really long time. So that's the biggest thing is that, like, um, because our numbers are not tracked, because we don't enter into the system. And in order to be counted, the kids would have to go into the system. And we are very resistant to putting our children in the system, to yeah. having any relationship <laughs> with law enforcement yeah. or social workers, because there's a history of Black yeah. children being detained at higher rates and for mm -hmm. longer lengths of time. And so it, uh, it seems as though we don't adopt at the same rate. And formally, we don't. Okay. So partially it's just that kind of defensive well I don't I don't want you to know right. too much about my family because you could use that against me that sort of thing absolutely absolutely okay. I do All have right. to pipe in though that I love the culture the grand family culture that it takes a village to raise a child yes and it seems like the black villages they just welcome their babies no matter what family they come from they just welcome them into these grand families right sure Sure. I mean, you know, I can say not all families are happy about their, you know, maybe mm. young daughter bringing home. I mean, I wouldn't be thrilled if my 17 yeah. year old came home with a child, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not the kid's fault. So, yeah. and then just culturally, I mean, even that saying it takes a village, that's an African, um, that's an African proverb. And so that's something that Africans and other indigenous cultures throughout the world and even yeah. immigrant cultures, you know, you live multi-generationally until one group kind of gets on their feet and so on and so forth. But we still live very communally, even if we don't live multi-generationally, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. And it's just like your community, like you said, it's your people. Yes. It's your people. And uh, we had a, an interview with a guest a little while back. She talked about how just all 
cultures have kind of like the mainstream culture has kind of lost that village. Yes. yes. We've kind of drawn away from our villages and it makes it so that our communities don't bond as closely with our children. So I think right. it's really great to make sure you're having that village for raising your adopt uh, your adoptive children so that they have that many people who care about them or just any any child that comes into that community feels loved and bonded with no matter who their parents are who's raising them absolutely and we we don't treat them like so to use like i don't ever refer to my kids as my adopted children because i feel like that puts a space between us and so these are my children (laughs) and i forget that they are adopted and um because I'm here every single day doing the heavy lifting and, you know, good, bad, or otherwise it's me. And so we don't treat them like something's wrong with them or their other. I mean, and again, there are certainly examples that are totally contrary <laughs> to my experience. So I'm not holding my experience out as, you know, the experience, but yeah, it takes a village, whatever your village looks like, it takes a village. And yeah, they just through process of raising them, they are your kids. So yes. it kind of doesn't matter. Yes. Yes. Awesome. So um just how do you manage day to day as a single mother? Do you have um I guess COVID, you get to work from home now, so it's fine. And plus they're older, they can kind of manage themselves. But when they were a little younger, how was your work situation and your childcare situation? How did that all work out? Well, I am forever grateful to school. Mm -hmm. And so I work when they are at school. And that has pretty much uh, been, even when I I write, sometimes I write when they're home. It's Uh it's hard though, but typically everything I do, I have to do during school hours. Mm -hmm. So then you just kind of reserve the after school hours for being with them. That and carpool and, you know, chauffeur and all of the other hats that I wear, you know, Mm -hmm. once they get out of school. And then my friends and I help each other, you know, with pickup. Well, you know, COVID, of course, put the kibosh on that. But previous to that, we definitely supported each other with carpool. So if um, I I have a lot of friends who are writers and if they're working on something, they'd be like, oh, Neff, can you go grab someone? So I'm like, oh, sure. You know, no worries. And so that sort of thing, uh, if there were after school activities that I could sign the kids up for just to extend my day so I could work a little bit longer. I definitely would do that. And so my aunt would help uh, with pickup. So that was, that part of it really isn't, hasn't been that hard. I mean, we just, you know, do what you got to do. Yeah. You just make it work. Yes. And I guess they probably, well, not with COVID, but (laughs) they have friends that they're probably off with. Oh yeah. And then this, our school community is, you know, fantastic. And with play dates, you know, parents will say, Mm -hmm. okay, I will pick them up and they'll go home with me. And then you just come a little later or, you know, or I would reciprocate that for someone. And that's Mm -hmm. important. That's definitely really important to have, you know, multiple villages. So, yeah. And when, when you were first very brand new with your Uh son, having to adjust how long did you feel like it kind of took you to feel like you knew what you were doing never never so. okay <laughs> I guess that's probably how it is with everybody huh? yes never <laughs> but uh you know so being pregnant uh I am as my friend said okay we had nine months to think about you know what we were going to do and really prepare 
emotionally. Yeah. And so as an adoptive parent, I was prepared intellectually, but I wasn't prepared emotionally and physically. It's just incredibly exhausting to take care of a baby. Oh my God. And the thought of you know, I did it because I had no choice and it was just me in the house. And then I did not do a very good job of asking for help when mm -hmm. he was little. And my cousin and I adopted at the same time. And she would be like, oh yeah, I just woke up from a nap. My friend is here watching the baby. I'm like, how do you do that? I don't understand. <laughs> and he'd be asleep and I'm doing laundry or I'm cleaning up. And I know you're supposed to sleep when they sleep and all of that, but I, I was just crazy. So yeah, you, you want to prove yourself. You don't want to have to say, Hey mom, can you come over and help me? <laughs> or whatever. Yes. Yeah. I did not uh, want to do that. And my friends, you know, would offer to help, but I had it in my mind, you know, this was my decision. So I needed yeah. to be the one to do all and be all to him. And that was, that was not smart. How long did it take you to realize that you needed that village? Probably when my daughter came, because there was just, you know, physically, it was impossible to be all of that to one child. And now I had to, plus I had a job, plus I had two dogs and, you know, I had friendships. I was dating a little bit. So I really had to have and lean on my friends in a way I hadn't leaned on them before. And they, uh, they just stepped up. They were oh, yeah. already ready to hop in. Oh yeah, definitely. A lot of his friends are only children. So my son tagging along was great because it gave their child a playmate. So it worked out. Awesome. <laughs> that probably makes it easier for everybody. Oh, yes. Yes. So now knowing what you know, having done this for roughly four, 13, 14 years, mm -hmm. what advice would you have for somebody starting out in a similar situation now? So like me, I'm in roughly in that situation, getting ready within the next few years to look into something like that. What is your advice? <laughs> So my advice to you, Aaron, would be to make sure this is the right time. So, mm -hmm. you know, you may want to be a mom and I love that you are, have already pushed it out a couple of years. So that's good. Yeah. And you know, that the timing is good for you. It doesn't have to be good for anyone else. It just needs to be good for you. Mm -hmm. And that work-wise, you will be able to have time to bond, you know, with your baby or whichever age group. Cause even if you get an older child, you still need time to bond with mm -hmm. the child and that, you are really ready to have no life and <laughs> that your life revolve around your child. Yep. And, um, I, oh, and, and to make sure you have a community. So, you know, I don't know if your parents are live near you and, it, mm. and you have to talk to them in advance and ask, you know, yeah. my grandmother was very clear. We cannot help you. I can give you money, but I cannot help you. So, cause they were old and that's fair. Yeah. And so, you know, make sure that you really have people who are going to be there for you because you will need the help. And that's a, that's a real conversation and people should feel free to be honest and say, like one of my really good friends, she's like, I don't do kids. And so, and she lives out of state, which is fine, yeah. but she's very clear. I do not do kids. <laughs> and so I would never ask her to babysit because I know she doesn't do kids. So um, making sure that your village is intact and that they will be there for you and i would say that when you are ready be prepared for people to poke holes in your reasoning for why you want to become a mother through adoption oh, yeah. already getting that <laughs> i'm sure and you just have to be you know resolute in your decision because at the end of the day you know you get 
you get all the glory and you get all of the flack, you know, however it goes. Yep. So just to kind of block out the chatter, because sometimes people mean well. I think most mm -hmm. people mean well. Yeah. Um, they are afraid and they project that onto you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and it's okay for them to, and if you, you know, if you don't want to hear it, you also get to say thank you. You know, this is uh -huh. my choice and I'm doing, I'm doing me. So yeah, that would be my advice. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for talking with us. This was really great. Yeah, I just think your story is so cool and it is just the sort of thing people need to hear because not everybody is in the same place or the same demographic. Yeah, that's but, true. Well, anyway. and tell us, tell us also what's in your book. Okay, so in my book, I talk about a lot of stuff. So I, I talk about, as I mentioned earlier, being raised by grandparents. And then I talk about going through the adoption process and really kind of working through, because I got questioned a lot, like, well, why would you adopt a little girl? You know, you, you seem like the type who could raise a strong woman. So, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Mm -hmm. And um, my mind had been made up from the beginning, but in my book, I do talk about just sort of coming to my own sort of intersectional awakening of what it means to be a black woman mm -hmm. and ultimately what it means to be a black mother. Mm -hmm. And so I talk a lot about how there's a, there's, nuances while there are universalities in parenting there's certainly cultural nuances and so for me my sort of black mom awakening was the death of Trayvon Martin and mm. it wasn't until his murder that I understood that I would also parent from a space of fear because mm. I would fear when my child you know leaves the house yeah. and be concerned about how he would be perceived in, the, in a store, at school, or just on the street, and having to arm him with information and talk to him about race and racism and systemic racism and how it would come for him, even though he's minding his own business and he's an expert on trains and it wasn't anything that he did. It's just, it's the world in which we live and you know, hopefully it will be better when he becomes an adult and should he choose to have a family and he won't have to talk to his kids about enslavement and second-class citizenship and um mm. and all of these things and so um i think that's probably a pretty large part of my book and it's important for white mothers to know that when our kids are together like you have to teach your kids about race and racism mm. and you teach your child to take care of my child my, my son has a lot of white friends and they love him and these are wonderful families and it's important that if your son takes a shortcut home, the day my child is with your child, you know, no shortcuts, because we all know that if the police are called or any alarms are raised, that it'll be my child who's detained Absolutely. or who will get in trouble. And so mm -hmm. teaching children to be allies, you know, even at a young age, it seems like a tall order, but as a parent of black children, I have to teach my child how to advocate and how to stay not only physically safe, but emotionally safe. And I also just talk about um, just, you know, motherhood in our country, it's still red as white. Mm -hmm. And yet there's diversity within white motherhood, but there's a racial hierarchies within mm -hmm. motherhood. And so stories like mine, 
don't get told very often because it's like, well, you know, why would that be important to me? And so, but it is, my story is important to you because mm -hmm. I think it'll go a long way in, in helping moms who might, I feel we have a lot of power, but really kind of get on board and get our kids together and, and raise children who will grow up seeing each other as just as people and yes. respecting each other as people. I think just having that understanding of black motherhood and what that even means, because yes. some just we get this societal perception, like you said, a, a mother is is white and married and suburban yes. or whatever. But if you're a black mother, you raised your kids alone because the dad wasn't there or something. There's this perception that's just yes. there in the media and all of this stuff. So having a more grounded understanding of what black motherhood even is is I think super important for everybody, for for kids, for white mothers, for other black women. I think that's just yeah. very important voice to get out there. Yes, definitely. I mean, we're not a monolith. Like I said, most of my friends are married. And so they're, hmm. you know, we, we have a lot of com in common, but you know, there's a lot of diversity within my friend group as well. So, hmm. awesome. And yeah, I had a chance before this to read a little bit of your book and I'm going to go and finish it now that Good. I have more time. It was, Good. I was enraptured by it just because I just love your determination in that in the first place. And just, it really speaks to defining more, a broader sense of what motherhood can mean. Um, and I think we just need more of that. We need more people who are encouraged to be mothers or parents in general sure because there are so many kids that need that and because our villages require a lot of parents just kind of being in that mindset I think stories like yours are super important to defining that a little more broadly than we have now yes yes agreed anyway thank you so much oh, you're welcome. super awesome and where can we find all of your stuff all of your your work and your writing and your everything, Nefertiti. <laughs> okay, lots of places. So I have a website, it's uh, nefertitiaustin.com. Although if you Google me, I think most of my work will appear in some <laughs> shape or form. Yeah. And my memoir, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America is available wherever books are sold. And I think it's actually on sale now on Amazon. And, you know, certainly support your local independent bookstores, your Black-owned bookstores, women-owned bookstores, you know, I'm everywhere. So that's wonderful. I do have a social media presence. I'm on Instagram at I am Nefertiti Austin. Twitter at Nefertiti Austin, Facebook at Nefertiti Austin. And I make a point to respond to people. So as you know, if you email me, I will respond. You did, you did very quickly. So that was awesome. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Erin. Okay, if you have any questions about this episode or want to reach out directly to us for any reason or have us relay a message to Nefertiti, you can always contact us at media at birthcircle.com. Thanks again, guys. Please visit us at birthcircle.com Join our Facebook groups or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.
And thank you to Launchpod Media, who produces these podcasts.